I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 4th, 2013. Coming up, we'll discuss new research on how to deliver cancer drugs more efficiently in rafts. And how we might be able to use cancer mutations to target tumors. And we'll discuss the radiation risks for astronauts traveling to Mars. Reporting some of the first results from the Mars Science Laboratory during its cruise to Mars. We'll begin with some of the recent news in science. New research shows that three and a half million years ago, African hominids moved from forests into grasslands, and this might have helped them evolve into us. The evidence comes from CU Boulder scientists who examined ancient teeth for chemical isotopes called C3 and C4. C3 isotopes accumulate when an animal's diet comes from the forest. Four million years ago, our ancestors ate forest food. C4 isotopes come from the savanna. Three and a half million years ago, tooth analyses indicates our ancestors lived in the grasses, munching away. But did they just dine on grass, like a cow? Here's the lead author of the study, CU Boulder researcher Matt Sponheimer. That's a, that's a fantastic question. And in fact, nowadays, if you look at the isotopic composition of most Americans, we actually look like grass eaters. Why? Well, because we eat so much bloody corn. <laughs> it's in our coke. It's, you know, a sweetener, it's in our beef, and it's in our just about everything we eat. Spineheimer says that three and a half million years ago, the C4 isotope might have come from our ancestors eating grassland grass, or seeds, or tubers, or from eating other eaters of grass. And for what kind of animals? Here's his guess. If you're eating termites, that's no problem. Easy to do. But if you're actually talking about eating something like vertebrate meat, you know, something like zebra steaks, then you have a real problem because we don't have any stone tools associated with them at that age, nothing to help cut it up. Spineheimer says that it will take more studies to figure out just what our ancient ancestors actually ate. His new study was published yesterday online by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Last month, we reported on a story about 3D printers to create body parts, including jawbones, bladders, and even a prototype bionic ear. Now, NASA has announced a new concept for 3D printers, building on-demand tools and parts in space. In a joint project between NASA and a California company called Made in Space, the first space-rated 3D printer will be flown to the International Space Station for a test drive. This technology could provide huge benefits in future space exploration. Saving on mass and volume are extremely important for space missions, since the cost and size of a spacecraft and the amount of fuel needed to launch and fly is related to how much stuff you pack in your spacecraft. So it is a waste of money, fuel, and other resources to bring items you end up not using but you can't always predict what tools or spare parts you may need to bring with you on a space mission. But with 3D printers, astronauts on long-duration space missions could simply print tools as they are needed, and then even recycle them back to the original printer material afterwards so they could reuse the print chemicals to make the next tool or part. Further, in the future, 
Large-scale 3D printing may allow an entire spacecraft to be manufactured in space, eliminating design constraints caused by the limitations of launching from Earth. Robotic systems could use 3D printers to create habitats for human missions to the moon and Mars using printed building blocks that take advantage of in-situ resources such as local soil or minerals. You hear a lot on this show from scientists about their research. If you're curious what it's like as a journalist writing and broadcasting about scientists and their work, come tonight to Café Scientifique in Denver. A small group of science writers, including yours truly, Susan Moran, as well as Kendall Powell, Hilary Rosner, and author-humorist Garth Sundom, will share tales from the front lines. And we'll talk about what it takes to break into the field of freelance science writing and thrive, or at least survive, while learning a ton. Some of us are contributors to a newly published book called The Science Writer's Handbook, How to Pitch, Publish, and Prosper in the Digital Age. The discussion begins at 6.30, but feel free to come earlier to have some food and beer and to network. Cafe Sai meets at the Wincoop Brewery at the corner of 18th Street and Wincoop in Lodo, Denver. For more info about the event, visit cafesaicolorado.org. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Cancer drugs are much more targeted than they were many years ago, but researchers are still trying to find a way to deliver drugs much more precisely to cancer cells, partly to avoid damaging, sometimes even lethal, side effects to the patient. A huge obstacle has been getting nucleic acids to cross the membrane of cancer cells themselves. A new study has brought researchers closer to crossing this big hurdle. The lead Author of the study, Dr. Tom Enchodiki, is with us in the studio to shed some light on the study and what it means. He's the investigator at the University of Colorado Cancer Center in Denver and a professor at the Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Dr. Enchodiki, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, thanks to be here. So maybe start with just the context itself. So we're really talking about the new frontier of cancer drugs and how they're delivered, right? Well, I think the the prospect of using nucleic acids as drugs has really opened up a new era for, for cancer therapeutics as well as potentially treating other diseases. And and so what is it about the nucleic acids that brings this really to a different a different level? Well, with nucleic acids you're actually treating the ultimate cause of the problem. That is the, the the expression in the cancer cell, that is the proteins that it's making, you're actually regulating that rather than trying to uh, kill the uh, protein per se. So you're really trying to reprogram what's happening to the sort of mutation in the cells themselves rather than blasting them when it's too late. Right. You're actually trying to reprogram the cells. You can actually reprogram them to make them more like normal cells and thus not, not cancerous. Um, so that would either by replacing a gene or by using other nucleic acids that regulate different genes. And what's been, I mean, is this sort of the holy grail? And what's been so challenging about this process? So uh, most of the listeners will be familiar with taking a, a pill, for example. These mm -hmm. are small molecule drugs that diffuse all throughout the body. Um, so small molecule drugs can penetrate inside of a cell and, and, and affect it. The nucleic acids and proteins, these kind of biotech drugs that we have now, are too big to get into, into a cell. Mm -hmm. And so the barrier has been getting nucleic acids into a cell. And you use the 
analogy, if it's an analogy or an actual thing, called a raft, a lipid, you know, partly cholesterol raft to do that delivery. H how does that work and how, how does the cell not reject it? And how are we sure that it gets to the right kind of cells? So uh, with the raft, what, what's, if you pick up a biology textbook, for example, the, the cell is thought to be a, a, a membrane where proteins just float around randomly like driftwood. But a raft is a structure that uh, coordinates them and, and keeps them from drifting uh, other places. So it kind of confines them into a certain area. And so what we've done is make a particle uh, with a drug in it, with a gene in it, that uh, has a raft, and that seems to interact in the cell in a way that makes the cell more likely to take it up and use the gene. And what does it consist of? Is it actually parts of the cell membrane itself? So the, a natural cell membrane is largely, uh, the, the, the rafts are specific uh, lipids, one of which is cholesterol. Um, the, the particles that we make have cholesterol in them as well, so it makes a, a kind of a synthetic raft. And the cell treats that differently somehow, and the exact reason why it treats it differently we're not sure, but we, the ultimate result is that the genes are used much more efficiently by the cell. And the targeting that most people, when we talk about targeting, have in their minds the idea that this particle would just flow through the blood and go specifically to the tumor. And that's not actually what happens with nucleic acid drugs. That would be great if we could achieve that. But in fact, we haven't been able to achieve that for the last 30 years. By using the mutation of a cancer cell, what we're doing is delivering a gene that only the cancer cell will be affected by. Um, so Which is an, the main point, right? Right. So yeah. if, a, if a cell, a normal cell has a mutation that causes it to become cancerous, if we deliver a corrected copy of that gene, a normal cell will not be affected by that. So all the, all the particles that go to the wrong place really don't have any effect. It's only the particles that get to the tumor that affect the tumor. Mm -hmm. So I love the analogy of the raft. Is it actually sort of raft shape or does the, is the shape critical? The, it's not the shape, it's more that it floats on the sea of, of if you picture the, uh, the cell membrane in two dimensions, a raft would be a, a big platform essentially that moves around and it's, it doesn't mix with the rest of the membrane. So it's a confined area and it does float, it does move, but the, the, the particles within it are constrained to that raft. They don't diffuse out. Mm -hmm. so. And how have you tested this? So we have, we've made, we can uh, detect these rafts a number of different ways. All cell membranes have rafts. And so what we've done is we make a particle and we can uh, make it uh, to the point where it forms a raft or we can be right on that hairy edge where we're not quite at a raft. And what we see is right at this transition where we, where we form a raft, we get much better delivery of those genes to the cell. So you've done this in the lab and it has worked to the extent that obviously you've had this published. Right, yeah. Right? And as you said, the, the raft itself is, is nothing new. I mean, it's been known for quite some time. So how does this take what's been known a step further? Is it that previous methods just haven't worked? So rafts have been known to be in cells for a good 10 years or so. The prevalence of them, I think, wasn't fully appreciated, maybe till more recently in the last five years. But what we've done is put a raft in the particle that interacts with the rafts in the cells. And that's different. Other people have studied rafts because they want to know how they function in a cell and, and what advantages, well, how does the cell use them. What we're doing is delivering a raft to the cell and saying, here's a raft, 
do what you want with it. And the cell turns out, the cells normally wouldn't destroy rafts, their own rafts. They would recycle them, they would store them. And so what we may be doing and what we may be achieving is that by giving the cell a raft, it is choosing to treat it differently than it would normal drugs, which would just dispose of. So great step in the lab. Mm -hmm. What will it take to bring this to clinical trial, or what would be the next step yeah, so to bring I, it closer to an actual cancer therapy? So we've done it in the lab in mice as well. And, and uh, what you see, again, is the same thing, is that you can make a particle that has a raft, one that doesn't, and the one with the raft works much better. So it, to clinical trials, I think we've got a long way to go there. We're still perfecting this raft trying to understand why it does what it does. And I have a number of people working on that right now in, in Denver. Mm -hmm. Other places around the country and world, for that matter, as well? Or is this a pretty isolated, cutting-edge uh, spot? I think it's, uh, we're, we're certainly the only people to be doing it now. We've been working mm -hmm. on this for about 10 years, and, and it's kind of a, a new-slash-wacky idea. And uh, so I think most people have... Uh, not figured it was going very far, but it's starting to gain momentum now, and I'm starting to develop collaborations throughout the world on some of this. It's interesting, just so many things that start out as wacky ideas. Some <laughs> remain that, but yeah, others yeah. don't. So do you hope, do you expect within your lifetime we really will have a cure for cancer, at least in terms of chemotherapy? Well, I wouldn't say that. That's This is a... Uh... Uh, cancer is a very difficult disease, and I think what we will have in, in my lifetime is a better way to deliver drugs to cancers. But curing it, that's that's another ballgame. Right. And what is it about this research that must fascinate you? You're a patient man. You've waited 10 years for this. <laughs> well, I think, you know, scientific pursuit is this slow progress. And so, you know, with every coming year, we learn a little bit more. And that makes it, it's like solving a puzzle. And it's a lifelong puzzle one wishes to solve. Ultimately, we'd love to cure cancer. But realistically, lots of people have been doing that for many decades. The odds of us being the one to solve that problem is un unlikely. But, uh, but we, we're, we're fascinated by the question, and every year we make progress. And that's what keeps us going. That's great. Uh, that was Dr. Tom Anchardoki from the University of Colorado Cancer Center in Denver. Tom, thanks so much for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Joel Parker. Now, being an astronaut is certainly a risky job. That's no surprise. But perhaps one of the less known risks is the high levels of radiation beyond the relatively protective cocoon of Earth's magnetic field. This will be particularly important problem to address for long-duration deep space flights such as going to Mars. Until recently, there has not been a lot of measurements available of the interplanetary radiation field for the types of radiation that could affect humans. But on the Curiosity rover of the Mars Science Laboratory, there is a radiation detector designed to make those important measurements, and the instrument team has recently published their initial results. 
In the studio today, we have Dr. Don Hassler, Science Program Director at Southwest Research Institute's Boulder office, the same institute where I work. And he is the principal investigator for the radiation assessment detector on the Mars Curiosity rover. Welcome to How on Earth, Don. Thank you, Joel. So the nickname is RAD. What is RAD? So RAD is uh, one of the 10 instruments on the Mars Science Laboratory. And as you mentioned, the primary objective of RAD is to characterize the radiation environment on the surface of Mars. But we realized about a year, year and a half before launch that uh, we could turn RAD on during cruise to Mars inside the spacecraft. And this would be the similar radiation environment that a future human astronaut might experience on a future human mission to Mars. Was the shielding on the spacecraft similar or as expected for an astronaut-based mission to Mars? Well, that's the interesting part. It wasn't so different. It was on, you know, the order of, you know, 10 to 20 grams of shielding per cubic per square centimeter. And that's not... Uh, that's not so different than what you get on the space station. So example. you want to protect those instruments as well as you'd protect the astronauts, right? Well, you know, we're <laughs> learning from the measurements about how to better protect them, how to improve the shielding. Were you the only instrument, actually, that was able to turn on during cruise? Uh, well, we were the only ones to operate routinely. Sure. The others probably had checkout and stuff. They did checkout. But we, we turned on 10 days after launch, and we operated for about seven months. So you were able to get seven months of data even before you got to Mars. That's right. Are those data the ones that are in the recent paper that was published? So that's the that's the object that's the uh, the subject of this paper that came out on in fr on Friday in Science. Uh, that was seven months of observations during cruise. We we got a good characterization of the two types of space radiation which are important: the background galactic cosmic rays, as well as we saw five solar energetic particle events which come from the sun and they're very sporadic and 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 difficult to predict, but we observed five different events that were of varying sizes and magnitude. So both these sources of radiation, the galactic background and stuff coming off the sun, those are types of radiation that are of concern for humans in flight? That's correct. And they're, they're slightly different in, in, in terms of uh, the, the risk from each one. How does RAD measure or mimic what an astronaut would experience in space? Well, so it's not so much that RAD is mimicking in what an astronaut is in space. It's the location. So where RAD was inside the spacecraft, an astronaut will be inside a spacecraft. All the measurements to date have been trying to characterize the radiation environment in space. And so you put your instruments on the outside of the spacecraft to measure the pristine space environment. Right. You don't we, want the spacecraft messing up your measurements. That's right. right. That's right. And this, you know, in this time, we weren't intended to be making these measurements. So, you know, we got the dirty environment of the radiation interacting with the spacecraft. So what were the results? The interesting thing that we found is that these are the first time we've actually made these types of measurements. There's been models and theories about what the radiation environment would be, um, you know, for years. And, you know, there's probably a half a dozen different models. And our results agreed more or less with several of them. It just didn't agree completely with others. With the uh, Agreed with, with the models. The models. Well, the models agree with the results. The right. results are what they are. <laughs> uh, so, but the, you know, the, 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 the exciting point is that these are actual measurements. These are ground truth measurements for which all models need to Space measure up truth. To. That's right. So yeah. these measurements had not really been done at least this way before? Well, the objective of sending, you know, humans to Mars or into deep space is, uh, you know, when we went to the moon, we did not have, 
I think we might have had simple dosimeters, but we didn't have sophisticated radiation instruments in the spacecraft. Those were also short-term missions. Going to Mars is a long-term endeavor. So you're able to see, is it like a, a spectrum of energies of different particles, or what are the actual measurements that you get? So RAD measures both uh, dose and dose equivalent, which is the 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 effectiveness of, uh, of the total radiation dose rate that affects human tissue and cells. Uh, but it also measures the energy spectra, and we have that, and those are results that are going to come in a follow-on paper. If we were to try to picture RAD, if you can describe it on the radio, what does RAD look like? Is it some huge human-sized right. instrument? No, RAD, RAD is about the size of a coffee maker or a blender. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty small and compact. It was designed to, to go to Mars. Everything, like you said earlier in the show, it, uh, you want to... Um, you know, you need to minimize your mass and volume when you send things into space, and going to Mars is an extreme case of that. So you're able to uh, measure the radiation, and how does that compare relative to, say, other risks for astronauts in space? Sure. So what we're finding is that uh, an astronaut on the space station receives about a thousand times higher radiation levels than than on Earth. Um, an astronaut going to Mars in deep space, we're finding is about three times greater than that on, on the space station. So it's, it's even more than being on the space station. It's equivalent to getting one CAT scan every five or six days. And it's different from the space station because why? We're, we're protected somewhat. We're inside the Earth's magnetosphere. So that actually does provide a fair amount of shielding. Lucky us. We are lucky. I guess we get uh, an increase in radiation anyway, living in Denver versus living at sea level. That's know? right. We get about twice the radiation uh, in Denver as we would on at sea level. So maybe you have a choice of going to Denver or going to Mars, you know, and uh, trade off the radiation risks there. Well, so what's interesting <laughs> is, is if you look at the radiation dose rate of... Uh, uh, comparing, you know, living on on Earth, you know, I think all the stories uh, this morning have, have had a, a common theme or a synergy among them. Um, you know, the chance of getting cancer here on Earth is maybe on the order of, you know, 20 to 25 percent, depending upon where you live. Um, what we found was that the uh, the levels of radiation that we would experience in deep space on a mission to Mars might increase that risk by three to five percent. Um, compared to the baseline 25%. Compared to the baseline of, of, of 25%. So so what would you say are the implications for future deep space travel from your measurements? Well, we, you know, the, we always want to minimize the risk to astronauts when we send them into space. And, and that's uh, NASA's number one objective is to keep our, our astronauts safe and uh, to minimize the risks when they go. Um, going on a mission to Mars is a, is a completely new endeavor that uh, is exploration class type of endeavor. And so, you know, we've begun a discussion and a debate within, uh, you know, within the community about what, you know, what levels of risk should be acceptable for a mission like this and, and how big does the risk from radiation compare to other risks of, of actually getting the, the spacecraft to Mars and landing safely on the surface of the planet. Seems like this small risk would not necessarily cut down the list of volunteers who would want to go on the trip. No, that's that's an interesting thing. It's it's certainly true that uh, there's, there's a large number of people that are happy to volunteer um, you know, for a mission, even if it's a one-way mission. And one last question. I know that this isn't the only RAD. You have a couple other RADs. So. Yeah, so we're building uh, the next generation version of RAD to go on the space station to characterize the environment inside the space station for each of the astronauts, and that's, uh, that'll be delivered next year. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that was Don Hassler from Southwest Research Institute talking about the recent results from the Radiation Assessment Detector, or RAD, on the Mars Curiosity rover. 
Thanks for coming on the show, Don. Thank you, Joel. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Today's show was produced by Susan Moran. Our executive producer this quarter is Joel Parker. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Habib Koita, Eric Bird, and from local musician Brad Good. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.